Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Jill and David Henry, the authors of The Greatest College Health Guide You Never Knew You Needed. Jill, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited for our conversation. But before we jump in, let's check in. How are you really? I am just getting over being sick, so I am now playing catch up to get back on track with everything. But otherwise, I feel like I'm on the upswing, so that's that's a positive. 30 minutes ago, I was really tired, but the coffee has kicked in and I don't really feel tired right now. I'm happy to answer the question that way. Well, Joe, I'm glad you're feeling better. And David, I feel that once the coffee kicks in, the day is okay. At least for like the next hour or two, then the next yes. cup is definitely needed. 100%. So tell us a little bit about this book and what inspired you to write it. So I coach high school girls cross country and Dave actually used to coach high school football. That's how we met. And five and a half years ago at this point at a senior brunch that we host at our house, we were talking with the cross country girls and, you know, keep in mind, this is in the fall. So they're right in the middle of college applications and feeling that stress. And the conversation about the freshman 15 came up sort of laughably. They were like, what are we going to do when we don't have sports? How do we avoid that? But then when we started digging a little deeper there was some more serious concerns just about how to take care of their mental health because they see the news of the mental health crisis that exists on college campuses. They see the statistics for drinking related deaths and sexual assaults and suicides on campus. And so, you know, they see the same stuff that troubles all of their parents. And they were kind of worried about how do we take care of ourselves and protect our well-being when we get to college. And so we took it upon ourselves to help set them up with some resources to prepare them. When we started looking, though, we couldn't really find anything that fit our needs. And that meant it was comprehensive, but more importantly, that it was sort of presented in a way that would resonate with a teenager looking to go to college. And so there's a lot of stuff out there, mostly on college websites, that's really geared towards the age group in terms of content, but not necessarily hitting the mark in terms of tone. So we took it on ourselves. <laughs> and so we spent uh, three years researching talking to health professionals. And then most importantly, we did a big um, countrywide survey of hundreds of college students, checking in with them. What do you wish you had known before going to school? And now looking back, what would you have done differently as a freshman to kind of get their feedback on how they would have done things to care for their wellness differently? Um, and all of that is thrown into our book. So we cover food, yeah. booze, stress, sex, uh, time management, habit building. What we saw as the most interesting challenge in trying to take something like this on was that, like Jill said, so much of this information is readily available, and yet it does not seem to be landing with the people who need it the most. So how do we contextualize this information in a way that would actually make you want to turn the page and keep reading? And so we really wanted to root this information first and foremost in personal stories, because it's one thing to read about nutrition, but if you are reading about somebody who is a sophomore at UCLA who struggled with how to ma manage the dining hall, and they're telling you their most vulnerable feelings about how that experience impacted their freshman year, their sophomore year, that has such a different way to strike to you and what you're going through and the way that you're looking at your experience in college than just seeing like, well, carbohydrates are this and make sure right. that you're getting enough protein in your diet. 
So that was really the, the biggest task that we felt like we could provide something that could land with the people that needed the most and be entertaining along the way. So that's ultimately why we decided to do this. Well, do you remember going to college, what you were nervous about or what you were super excited about kind of getting ready for that transition your senior year? Yeah, I remember I was so excited to move away from home. I couldn't (laughs) wait to be on my own and kind of take care of my own schedule and do what I want when I wanted. But I was terrified of time management. If I was going to be able to do it, I was terrified of if I could kind of take care of myself. You know, I wasn't the kind of person to pick up the phone and call the doctor. I needed my mom to call the doctor. If I had to go and if something happened, I needed to go to the doctor. I was not going to want to go by myself. So all these fears of what to do, because I was never prepared to be able to take care of myself. It is wild how that jump from real reliance on parents and structure that exists in high school shifts so quickly when you go to college and there's no preparation for it. Like we prepare kids to fill out their applications and to get into the schools and you kind of set them up for that transition in that way. But then there's no formal education that exists for like, how are you going to do this on your day-to-day life? How are you going to manage? And so that's, you know, my background is in education. And so for me, that was what was always really exciting about this book is hopefully filling a little bit of a need for, for the education component that really should exist for kids as they prepare for that transition. Exactly. There is not that education component. It is such a massive change. All of a sudden you're living by yourself or with some roommates and you have to cook for yourself, do your own laundry, wake yourself up, go to class. (laughs) Mom and dad are not going to drop you off if you miss the bus or if you're out of gas. Like there's no one to hold you responsible and accountable. And I think that there are so many different reasons that this transition is so hard. It's this lack of structure and little experience creating structure for yourself on your own. For better or worse, when you're in high school, so much of how you live your life is a structure that's completely imposed on you. You don't have a choice. You gotta be at school when you need to be there. You've gotta be at practice when you need to be there or whatever clubs you go to. And maybe most importantly, you've got somebody at the end of the day telling you, you need to go to bed. What are you doing still up? And all of that's completely removed. All of those structures that have kind of been like the bumper lanes at the bowling alley were there and now they're completely gone without any kind of guidebook or any kind of idea of, well, what do you do to replace that? What do you do? Not not everybody, but what do you personally do in order to put some structure into your life and how are you going to schedule your time? Another thing that came up that we really started to see in the student surveys was a shift in identity. We had a lot of students say, and one example was I came from a small high school and I went to a big college and I no longer felt like I was special or unique. And we kind of saw that over and over, particularly with kids who were high achieving in their high school, um, either great athletes or great performers or great students. And you maybe go from being like big fish in a small pond to being small fish in a big pond, depending on the college environment you had to. And so I think there's a lot of excitement on behalf of students about like, I get to make new friends and sort of craft this new identity. But then 
you know, recognizing that that also can be kind of intimidating and really hard. And you have to sort of strip away some things that maybe were big identifiers for you in the past that are no longer relevant, particularly if you're no longer an athlete or no longer going to be part of productions. Um, And so that's a big thing that maybe is not necessarily given enough airtime is that identity shift. Yeah. And also your support systems have been removed. You've spent an entire life up until this point, having not just your parents, but friends of your family, teachers, coaches, who have all kind of shepherded you for whatever reason, maybe they like you, maybe they don't, (laughs) uh, to try and take care of you. And so it's not just about um, a teacher saying, hey, you know, you bombed this test, or a friend coming up to you and saying, um, you know, you were late to school the other day, or you you were gone all last week. You know, it's those people coming up to you saying, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, are you? And that's the thing that you need the most when you're starting to dip into an area where you're not sure what to do. You're not sure where to go or or who to talk to in order to ask. So that support system being removed is is quite a a jarring shift for a lot of people. Well, and, and I'll dovetail on that super quickly because the 18 to 22 age range is sort of a unique one in terms of our development. It's when the uh, sort of the average age of onset of a lot of different mental health related concerns can pop up. So like first case of anxiety or depression, or um, for me, it was disordered eating sort of started to emerge when I was a college freshman. And so alcohol dependence. um, So a lot of that tends to happen around that age group. And to piggyback on what Dave was saying, you no longer have this familiar support system with you at all times. So you sort of have to be policing yourself of like, am I feeling off? Do I need to, like you said before, go see a doctor? Do I need to get some help? Because you don't have people that know you and kind of get your baseline to be like, hey, you're kind of seeming off and you've developed hopefully a new support system, but they don't have context for what's, you know, quote unquote normal for you. And so it forces you to be a little bit, you know, more uh, responsible for checking in with yourself particularly because you're at a higher risk just based on age of, you know, some, some more serious concerns. Since you've had some time in college, Fran, like looking back when you first started and kind of anywhere in that period, what was the most difficult part of the transition to college life that would, for you? I would say there's two different things. The first one was kind of managing what I was eating. Because before then, I would, in the mornings, my mom would have breakfast either to go on the table, you know, for lunch, I ate what I had at school, the same thing every day. And then at night, my mom always had dinner on the table. So I never had to kind of feed myself in a way where I was in charge of what I was going to eat. So for the first time, I was in complete control. And growing up, my parents didn't let me have a lot of sweets. So now I'm in this dining hall and there's this whole bar of cookies. I love cookies. So I would go and get the to-go container and fill it with cookies and eat them on my walk back to my dorm. I would eat like 10 cookies a day. And then I would be on this massive sugar rush for about five minutes and then I'd crash. And I had no energy and I didn't know why I didn't have energy. I didn't even connect to that. It was what I was eating because I was so excited to finally be in control and pick what I was eating. And I didn't realize how that was affecting me. And I was also struggling with an eating disorder at that time 
So I was only eating cookies because I was just getting all my calories from cookies for the day. And I was like, that's fine. And it wasn't. So I think that was really difficult for me was recognizing what I was putting in my body was dictating how I was feeling during the day and what energy I was going to have to be able to succeed in school. And then secondly, going back to like checking in and realizing if I need to go to the doctor and being willing to go by myself. I remember freshman year, I got a job for the first time and I was working and I split my finger open trying to cut a bagel. And I waited six hours for my dad to drive up to my college town, (laughs) bleeding for six hours, trying to make it stop to go and get stitches. (laughs) I was terrified of going by myself because I didn't know what to say. So I think recognizing or advocating for myself and learning how to speak up and recognize that it's time to go get support and help and balancing what I was eating and paying attention to how what I was putting in my body was fueling me were definitely two of the most difficult parts of the transition. Yeah, I, I really, it really resonates with me what you said about eating, because that was exactly my situation when I got to college. And what's problematic about it is you're surrounded by a bunch of other people who are, who many of whom are doing the same thing. And so I, I felt like garbage and my freshman year, I did gain a bunch of weight and then had boomeranged. Right. And then, so sophomore, junior year, I was like, I'm going to lose it all. And then some, and got into really unhealthy behaviors that way, but all my other friends are doing the same thing. And so your, your support system, you're surrounded by other people who have no idea what they're doing and are trying to learn it at the same time. And my parents who probably had, they been around would have stepped in and been like, Whoa, I noticed that you're eating, you know, my boomerang was like, I was eating a lot of sugar-free stuff and then cutting calories like crazy and just weird, bad habits that I got into. Nobody stepped in to be like, that's not healthy because none of my peers knew better. And so you really like, I, it took me until senior year. And honestly, if I'm being truthful, probably until like 24, 25 to really get back on track. And it was all because I had no idea what I was doing when I first started my independence with food. And it was a long journey to figure it out. And so that, I think it's a problem for a lot of girls, but you know, men struggle with it as well. But when you look at the statistics, I'm going to, I don't want to say it without being correct, but I think it's probably like 37%. So don't quote me on that. Um, struggle with disordered eating as freshmen in college in that like 18 to 22 year old age range. And a lot of it has to do with trying to control an out of control environment. But when you talk to students, they're like, I just didn't know any better. And I was like a kid in a candy shop surrounded by the cookies. And I never had unfettered access to sweets like that. And I just went crazy. And so, you know, I definitely think that our, our situations are very common on college campuses. Thank you for sharing that because like you said, that support system before you had someone who was older and wiser and had gone through it and knew more about it and how to help you identify when something's wrong. And then now you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are in the exact same boat as you. Right. So I was wondering, what do you think is a message that students should receive as they prepare for that transition to college? That's a, that's such a good question because I think a lot of the time the message that we hear when we've been speakers, a lot of the time we're introduced and the host will say, you know, these are, these people are going to talk to you about the college transition. College is going to be the best four years of your life. And we've occasionally just let it go, but sometimes we start the conversation with students being like, all right, let's reframe that a little bit because that can be somewhat of a damaging message to kids when they struggle 
And you're like, but everybody told me this is going to be the best four years of my life. And so I think that there is some real value in reframing that to students and being like, this will be tough at some points and you will fall on your face. You will learn from that though, and you will get through it and you will be tougher and better educated because of it. I think we need to start communicating the message of like the trial and error that exists. That's an important part of the college experience. And with the best times of your life, there will also be some real serious lows. And as I say to my runners, I'm like, if the college is the best four years of your life and you peak at 22, I'm like, come on, what a bummer that is. So I think that it can be really great, but I also think it needs to be communicated. It, it can be hard at times and that's okay. And you'll get through it. And there are tools that you will develop and tools that you can go with to help you. Um, but I think we need to, you know, be more realistic in setting students up for expectations so that when it's hard, they don't feel like they're the only one or that they've done something wrong to make it difficult for themselves. And to keep things realistic too, it's, you know, when you put a, a book into the world that's about health, we're not trying to stop you and make you avoid pitfalls. Right. If you can read this and be like, okay, well, now I'm not going to do that. Good on you. You are the 1% who's going to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. What's more important in regards to your relationship to your health is understanding what can you do when you're not feeling good, okay? So it's not about avoiding failure. It's about when you fail, which we all do, which you will continue to do, what can you do from there, right? right? And especially, you know, something about uh, the best four years of your life, this message that gets passed along a lot in an age where so much of our lives are dominated by social media, this can exacerbate the contrast you feel internally to what you perceive the rest of the world is going through. So if you were told this is going to be the greatest four years of your life, and then you're not feeling that, and it's hard, and you're lonely, and you feel like garbage, and you're not doing well in school, and you pull up your phone, and you're scrolling through, and you're like, Cynthia's doing great, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, really problematic because you feel like nobody else is experiencing what you're so I must be the problem I must be the one that's going through this so I think we're doing a real disservice to people who are going off to school by saying it will be amazing it can be that it will also be hard and most importantly when it's hard you can get through this because there's so many examples of people who have done that right I love that and you know you bring up such a great point with the best four years because I remember my sophomore year that I was exhausted and I was like is this really the best life's gonna get <laughs> like I was working 4 a.m shifts at Panera Bread then going to the gym and working out with my trainer then going to class all day then running home to change real quick going to Build-A-Bear to work a closing shift and then studying all night. And I would be throwing up almost every day from pure exhaustion. And I was like, great, this is the best it gets. So right. I love that you are kind of debunking that myth and letting people know that you're not going to peak at 22. Like, I hope you don't peak at 22 because you have so much ahead of you still. And to get to one point Dave said about sort of the, the trial and error and learning it as you go and there not being one quick answer, you know, at 22, you are only four years into your independence. And Dave and I, we, yeah, I talk to my athletes about it a lot. We talk about it when we talk to students. Despite the fact that we wrote a book on health, we still constantly 
struggles, well, struggle with our health. Like he's tired. I am over caffeinated. There are some weeks where we eat copious amounts of ice cream every single day, just because we need something to look forward to. Like, it's not, it's not that it ever, you ever crack the code or you learn this trick and then you're forever solved. You just get better at getting back on track. And so the more you practice it, the easier it gets. And so that's why I think life tends to get, you just get better managing your health and figuring out what you can do to make yourself feel good and be happy. And what's cool about that is college is the start of it. And the more you go through those trials and tribulations, the stronger that muscle of restarting really gets. And so I think that that's a good way of looking at college is like, it's just the beginning of an awesome journey of learning how to be independent and do things that make you happy. Um, And that's a cool way to look at it. It really is trial and error and looking at it from a place of you're going to fail and that's okay. And you're going to make so many mistakes along the way. And no, you're never going to crack the code. Like you said, you're never going to really figure it out. You're just going to keep learning and growing, knowing that it's okay. And it's always going to be a learning journey takes a lot of that stress and pressure away from us. But this is a great transition to this piece in your book where you say that the college environment is comically designed for students to fail. Can you explain more about what you meant by that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think you're going off to college to get a degree in something. And yes, ideally, that is true. But it's life outside the classroom that makes it so challenging, right? So when it comes to food, we talked about in the dining hall, nobody's gonna stop you from having two plates of fries for dinner. That's what I'm doing today. It's Tuesday, I eat fries, that's what I'm doing. Uh, Alcohol and drugs, you have access to parties in a way that a lot of kids, you know, this will be the first time that they're drinking and you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are all in their same boat. So it's really easy to overdo it in that setting exercise, you no longer have that built into your schedule. You don't have a coach saying you weren't at practice at 430. What's going on? You're sitting in your dorm room eating Doritos going like, no, I don't feel like going for a run. That's not (laughs) going to happen today. Sleep every night could be a sleepover if you wanted it to. There's nobody to tell you go to bed. There's nobody to tell you you got an early test tomorrow morning. It's midnight or one or three in the morning and you go to the bathroom and you're like, hey, what's going on, everybody? Like, you're still awake. Cool. This is exactly what I was looking for. And the stress of all of those things adding up, because like we mentioned before, you don't have the structures to kind of keep you in place. It's all on you. There's nothing to really stop that from building and mounting. And then you find yourself in a position of crisis where you don't even know how you got there. You just know you don't feel well. Well, and, and tack onto that, that you are surrounded by your social life, which when your social life isn't great and you have no escape, that can be really hard if you don't find a way to escape that, right? So if you're having trouble with your roommate, that's an added stress. It's like you don't have the escape that you had when you were in high school and you could be like, my friends, we're just not getting along right now, but at least I can go home and lock myself in my room and focus on something else. And so just the environment, There's, there was an interesting connection that we found when we were doing the research there was this, the Holmes Ray stress assessment was something that was built back in 1967, I think. And it's a cataloging of life's 43 most traumatic events. And they created it to help practitioners diagnose clients, or at least make sense of uh, whether or not a client could have an upcoming dip in mental health based on if they had experienced any of these traumatic events. Three of the items, and granted they're lower on the list, but are starting a new school, change of residence, and taking out a loan. So like, yeah. So like circumstantially, 
not even the other things that Dave said about the dining hall and the alcohol. Um, it's a really challenging position to be in, to move from being at home in a high school where you knew people with parents, like we talked about before, just that shift to the college environment is a challenging one um, in and of itself. I know you mentioned food earlier was kind of an initial challenge and then learning how to advocate for yourself in terms of uh, going to a doctor if you needed to, but do any of these other areas feel familiar or do they resonate in terms of things that caused challenges for you? All of them. But what I really wanted to say, I was thinking about when you said roommates and when you don't get along with your roommates, I remember it was my like sophomore year of college and I had two roommates and one of them, my other roommate actually just had sent me a picture today of the text messages that we would get when she was just having a bad day and we'd get yelled at over the pillows not being fluffed. And we're like, I was like, I don't sit on the couch. I'm in my room or working like that's it. So just this, but we couldn't escape it. I remember sitting in my other roommate's room, like hiding in there, hoping like the other roommate didn't know I was in there and that we were hanging out. We would like sit in the cl- our closets and like talk on the phone. Like it was just a very like walk, like walk on your. But I want to back that up. You would sit in your cl- in your closets and talk on the phone. I just want to like take a second <laughs> to appreciate that that's what we said in a dorm room. <laughs> they have the biggest closets. Okay, please proceed. This is great. Well, it was in a house. It was in a house. To be fair. Okay. Okay. But- okay. <laughs> yes, we were hiding because we didn't want we didn't want to cause any more problems and we were scared of getting yelled at. And it just felt like a very um, dramatic time in our lives. And I don't, I'm sure the roommate was going through something and I won't be like, this was a bad roommate because she was a really close friend at the time as well. But when we weren't getting along and there was nowhere to escape, I couldn't go back to my parents' house. I couldn't go stay at someone else's place. I had to live in the house that I was paying rent for. And that was it. If I wanted to go home, I had to drive six hours and wasn't going to be able to go to class. So realizing that I was stuck in that situation and I didn't even decide whether or not to like resign and stay in that same apartment or house with her until like a month before the next school year started because I was terrified. I didn't want to be a bad friend. I didn't, but I didn't want to be in a situation where I wasn't comfortable. And I think that's something that is so hard is friendships and knowing when it's time to cut the line and move forward and on with your life or to repair a relationship as well. Right. Well, and what you described is like textbook definition of chronic stress, where you constantly feel like not in your stomach, tightness in your chest, walking on eggshells. And when that's in your home environment where you should be able to relax and unwind, that is so tough. And so friendship, roommate conflicts, like all of that, like you said, how many people have had any experience, unless you grew up, you know, did high school in a boarding school, how many people have had any experience living with peers, particularly people they don't know? Maybe it's summer camp for a few weeks, but you're like, oh, whatever, it's summer camp. You know, you can, that's, that's such a short window of time. It's easy to just kind of scoop past it, but navigating those feelings. And like you said, figuring out how do I do this in a way that, because at that age, you don't, you don't want to lose friendships and you don't want to hurt people's feelings. It's very complex and, and waiting all through all of that. Um, it's, it's, it's a learning curve and it's uncomfortable and it, you know, I think prioritizing, again, remembering to the advice we got from so many students is 
prioritize yourself. You have to prioritize yourself. And that needs to kind of come above prioritizing academics and, you know, um, friendships and family sometimes, because if you're not doing well, you can't be your best self academically. You can't be your best self socially. That's a hard thing to learn, but you learn it again by doing it. And by being like, I'm going to stand up for myself and not sign this lease and not put myself back in this situation. And when you're no longer in that, you're like, oh my God, this feels different. This feels better. It's like, you've got to just try out putting yourself first until you realize like, oh, this is the only way that I should be doing things. And it's not, it might come off as selfish. It's not selfish. That's self-preservation. That's, you know, making sure that you are always keeping your, your mental and physical health at the forefront of what's important to you. Because you can't be, like I said before, you can't be good in other situations if you're not good in here. Yeah. And it's drawing boundaries. It's having the understanding of what you need as a person and saying that I will not settle for anything less than this. And I will be there for you as a friend in ways outside of this, but I, I do know what I need. And when there's that kind of interpersonal conflict that can completely take over your life removing yourself from that situation is a wonderful thing to consider. And I'm sure, like, how did you feel once you made that decision of you were no longer going to live in that same situation? So relieved because I finally felt like I was, and then I went and got an apartment by myself and I felt safe. I felt more safe living alone and knowing that I wasn't going to have to deal with someone else's stress and pressures because I wasn't in the mental mindset to be able to take care of someone else because I did not know how to take care of myself. When I finally realized that and got my own space, everything changed. This level of tightness in my chest where I felt like it was difficult to breathe was finally gone almost immediately. Well, and I was, you know, to give context to the other side of it, I was like the pillow fluffer roommate and my, you know, I was that person who was like, I almost made a joke about this because I'm still like that now. But, um, but you know, my roommates kind of drew boundaries with me and they were like, you got to just chill out. Like we're all living in this place together. And so keeping in mind that when you draw boundaries, it's not only good for you when you're at that age, when you're at in your early twenties, you're still, like you said, learning about how you want to navigate the world and you're not always doing it right. You kind of, tend to drift towards the more extreme parts of your personality when you're in a panic. And I learned, and I still learn from the feedback of other people of like, oh, this isn't necessarily the best way to cohabitate with other people. And so, you know, maybe you might not have seen it at the time, but I'm sure your roommate learned something about how to navigate living situations differently based on the fact that that living situation with you and her did not work out. So don't ever feel, you know, to anybody listening to this, don't ever feel like you putting up boundaries and caring for yourself is always damaging to the other person because that's just part of the learning and growing. We all have to kind of take each other's cues and figure out how to be, you know, collaborative. And and as I'm looking at Dave and he's like, you still bum me out about fluffing pillows and picking up bath mats, but it's, it's good for your own personal development. Yeah to have to deal with other people and find constructive ways to move forward. Yeah. You're hundred percent right. And I love how you talk about boundaries because no one teaches us this. No one teaches us how to set boundaries, how to be aware of how we're feeling, how to check in with ourselves and see how we're doing. So what do you think are some of the ways students can check in with themselves to see how they're doing? 
This is such an important and underdeveloped skill before arriving in college, which is the ability to do a self-assessment. How do I feel in my body? How does my mind feel right now? How have I been spending my time? And we frequently experience this in extreme ways. Like after you had an entire large pizza and you're sitting there and you're like, whoa, I feel terrible right now. That's, that's a cue from your body telling you that a decision you made is making you feel this way. Or after you pull an all-nighter and it's 1 p.m. the next day and you're like, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can get through this day. Those kind of extreme situations are us recognizing and assessing the cues that our body is giving us in terms of how do we feel. But the more you can start putting into pr practice, how do I feel right now? How do I feel in my body? And then what led to me feeling this way? So if you feel unfocused or uh, anxious or kind of frazzled, you know, take a step back. How much did you sleep last night? When was the last time you drank water? You know, these kinds of- Are you eating 10 cookies a day? Yeah, these, <laughs> these kind of quick check-ins with yourself are something that you can do before you arrive at campus. You know, you can start the summer before you go off to college. And you can try and develop this idea of, well, what am I feeling? And what does that tell me about what I have done recently, right? And it's that second level of assessing how have you spent your time that the more you can incorporate this kind of self-reflection on a regular basis into your life, that's how you avoid crisis. That's how you avoid these pitfalls where you have no idea how you wound up where you are. You just know that you don't feel good. If you're trying to every week take a look at the week and say, well, how did I do? How did I do with school? How did I do with sleep? How did I do with food? And the most important part of all of this is that you're completely honest without judgment for yourself, right? This isn't for your parents calling you. How are you doing? Like, no, I, I'm doing great, dad. You're a great mom. Like, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear right now because I know you want to feel better about things and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with you. You know, this isn't for social media. This is for you. And you got to live with you for the rest of your life. So the sooner you can start developing this honest relationship with yourself without judgment, so you can make decisions for the following, for the next week coming up of, okay, well, I wasn't great with school this week. I didn't finish the reading. I didn't do well in that quiz. I stayed up all night on Wednesday. I partied on Thursday. I've been eating like garbage. I haven't been exercising. I think I, I could do better than that this upcoming week. And it's trying to take all those things that could potentially really give you a great opportunity to feel bad about yourself and just use it as information to fuel how are you going to do things differently this upcoming week. And uh, you know, incorporating that kind of idea of let me look at what I have just done so that I can inform decisions of what I do this next week coming up is something that is, again, it's, it's for you. It's not for anybody else. And so those are the kind of things that can turn a potentially negative situation of, I feel bad about myself for not doing well and reaching expectations I set versus I have some information. Let's see if I can do better. And then when you check in that next week, if you're able to do better, you're going to, you're going to be like glowing. You're gonna be like, I, I can do this. Right. I think I can do this. Well, and, but to that point, it's, you know, he listed out like 10 things that can make you feel bad. 
I think it's super important to communicate the idea that like, you don't have to fix it all at once. It can be like, it really should be for the, you know, the root of success, little changes that you can really stick to. And also let's say you feel like garbage and you're like, yep, but I just need another week to wallow in my misery. Like (laughs) there are some weeks where I'll look at myself and be like, I spent way too much time wasting time on social media, or I didn't eat well, or I didn't exercise. That was literally last week. And I don't think I did much better this week because for whatever reason, I'm just not ready to. But I think not making excuses for yourself is something we talk about in the book. Um, But just being honest, like if you don't feel like exercising, don't punish yourself and force yourself to do it. Get to a point where you're like, you know what? I feel like I could do a little bit. I could do 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Everything with your health is, is interconnected. Like, you know, take sleep, for example. If you're not getting enough sleep, then you wake up feeling like garbage. The likelihood you're going to want to exercise when you're sleep deprived is lower. The likely, and, and from a physical, like chemical standpoint in your body, when you're sleep deprived, you have no appetite, or, or I should say it this way, you have an increased appetite for bad foods and you also have um, a likelihood, a higher likelihood of overeating because two hormones get really out of whack when leptin and ghrelin is what they're called when you haven't slept well. So all these things are connected. So the reason I pitch making one small change is it can have a really cool waterfall effect. And that if you're like, all I'm going to do is focus on sleep. That's a pretty easy one. If you can just kind of focus on making sure you hit a bedtime. Then, and this happened to me this week, I got a little more sleep. Then I was like, oh, I can get up and exercise for 20 minutes before my kids wake up. And so it really does have a nice combined effect where you don't have to try to overhaul everything. Pick something that feels easy, start there so that your likelihood of feeling like you failed is much less and don't shoot for the stars. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a way of like, don't have self-confidence. It's more like be realistic. If not any, if anything else, set a really basic, simple goal for yourself so that you can crush it rather than being like, I haven't been exercising. So next week I'm going to exercise five days a week for an hour a day, which I've been guilty of doing. And then even if you hit it next week, the likelihood you'll sustain that it's probably low. So we talk about in the book and anybody who writes about habits talks about this, like start small and build up. And instead of trying to bite off more than you can chew, there's a reason so many people blow it with new year's resolutions. And it's because oftentimes there are these really lofty goals that are super important to them. And they start off with all the best intentions, but also typically a plan that's totally unrealistic based on their current status. I think relating it back to new year's resolutions was a really great way to help resonate with people because I mean, we see it every year. All of a sudden we think, oh, I didn't work out for an entire year. But now, now I'm going to wake up at 6 a.m., go to the gym, eat all this healthy food that I would have refused to eat like yesterday. It's not sustainable because it's so far off. And David, you brought up a great point of all these different things that can be affecting us. And sometimes we check in and we see them all and we don't know where to start. We don't know how to recognize exactly what's off track and what to do about it. Well, when you're trying to make a change, you're not going to go zero to 60 like that and keep it going, right? It's not going to be this sustainable thing that you you can hold on to. And so for many students, just to throw this out there as one, you haven't had this opportunity to try and eat a healthy meal for yourself 
at any given time. You know what I mean? Like you're going to the dining hall and if you've got all these different trays in front of you, you're probably going to grab the chicken patties and the fries before you look at anything that's a vegetable, right? So just starting with, can I eat one healthy meal this week? And I know that it's going to be on Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever it is, but I'm going to take an opportunity to just to try that one thing and see how it feels. And you might be like, all right, I'm never eating salad again. I'm not going to do this. But it gives you an opportunity to try and practice incorporating something that is manageable into your regular life. Or just little ones like not like skipping desserts on, you know, Monday through Thursday, like the typical weeknights. If you're looking to kind of course correct with food, those are little changes that can make a big difference in terms of just consumption of things that might not make you feel great. And with alcohol and partying, you know, for so many students, whether you decide to drink or not, they're going to become drinking age while you are in college. And without any experience drinking or with very unsupervised experience drinking before arriving in college, it's so easy to overdo it because you don't have an idea of what your limits are. And this is actually a really fascinating thing that you can calculate how alcohol affects you based on your gender, based on your weight, and find out exactly how many drinks you can have before things start to get scary really fast. And so finding out, well, what, are, what is my personal limit? And it might be based on who I am and my size. I can't have more than three or four drinks a night. Well, set that intention so that when you go out, you have an idea in your head and you can be kind of keeping track so that when you get to your limit for the night, you can say, okay, I've hit this rather than, um, you know, the more you drink, your inhibitions start to lower and somebody's like, let's do a shot. Let's do another. Let's do three more. And before you know it, you're throwing up and that's not a situation you want to wind up in. So you can find your limit with a BAC calculator. I highly suggest people look into that. With exercise, again, Jill just mentioned leveraging um, inconvenience and convenience. The same thing goes with because you don't have a sport that you're going to after class, you can find a time where you have a class that's near the gym and leverage that convenience. You're going to be there. So wear workout clothes to that class. And then after that class, go work out and just get it done. And that way you fight the need to, you went to class, you walk back, you're tired, you haven't been drinking water and you're laying in your bed in your dorm room. What are the odds that you're gonna be like, you know, I really wanna go do hill sprints right now. That's exactly what I'm craving. Well, and after like week two of college, people are wearing sweatpants to class. So it's like totally normal. I mean, it happens in high school too. It's totally normal to wear workout clothes to class. So the last two in terms of course correcting with sleep, um, I kind of talked about it before have some expectations of a bedtime for yourself. It doesn't need to be nine o'clock at night. We're not talking about like child bedtime, but consistency of schedule actually has a pretty big impact on quality of sleep as much as quantity of hours in the night. So if you can just feel like I'm going to try to go to bed by 1130, at least Monday through Thursday, you set yourself up for it. You'll be able to fall asleep quicker. Your rest will be more restful and you'll typically wake up around the same time in the morning. So putting yourself on a schedule, and I would add to that, get into an agreement with your roommate to not let your room be the party room, because it's really hard to kick people out of your room. It's much easier to just like sneak out the door and then go to your room when you're ready to go to bed. And so we're not suggesting people, you know, lock themselves into a sleep schedule seven days a week, but it's about controlling your sleep on the nights where it should theoretically be controllable. And then the last thing 
stress in terms of course correcting. Um, we've started hearing from a lot of students. We actually started doing takeovers with our Instagram and getting advice from students. And we had one who talked two days ago about how he manages to balance everything. He's in a maritime academy, so a really regimented schedule and not a lot of time for himself. Um, and he said that his way to kind of make sure that he saves time for himself throughout the week is he does work every day like it's a job. He sits down for 90 minutes every day and sometimes he's getting ahead. Sometimes he's doing something that's due tomorrow, but he treats it with the same window every day. Like it's just work and he does whatever he needs to do. And he stays on top of his stuff like that. So scheduling homework, not because you have an assignment due tomorrow, but because your job as a college student is to do the academics. And part of that should be putting aside time for it. Like you would, if it was work for Panera or Build-A-Bear, it's like, you should have that built in. And if you want to be really strategic, the kind of key window of time where your brain is firing and you can really focus is like three hours after you get up. So if you tend to get up around seven, that sweet spot for you is from like 10 to noon where you can really sit down and hit some stuff that would be pretty hard with great attention. So that's not really the best time to return emails, like do that kind of simple tasks at night when you're tired, but reserve some space in the morning to hit the library, focus up, try to stay on top of your school. It's like what we talked about before, putting a schedule in place for yourself is the best way to make sure you don't let the time get away from you. It's the key to time management is like finding some blocks in your day that feel controlled and structured and allow you to kind of you know, feel like you have a say about the way your time is spent so that the things that can stress you out, like academics, it's like 90% of students, I think, report being, academics being their highest stress, um, making sure you have time to do that work is the key way to getting that stuff done. Fran, do you feel like you have any tricks or strategies for getting back on track with your physical or mental health when things have been drifting? Yeah, so I think for is having alarms set that remind me to go take a walk or drink water because I have a little bit of extra stress on my plate that I put on to myself every day and I'll forget to just move my body. I'll wake up, be sitting at my desk, and then all of a sudden it's 9 p.m. And I'll have no recollection of the day. I forgot to eat. Just I was just zoned in so hard so kind of putting those alarms on my phone like forcing myself to be mindful of the time and that I haven't moved and giving myself time to move scheduling a time in my calendar for the gym so now my calendar is blocked off for an hour two hours on certain days a week so I think just for me specifically it's scheduling you do the exact same I do the same thing every single day I sit pretty much all day. I work behind a computer and I have to have these regular regimented time windows where I can get up, I can go move, I can get away from my work. And yes, part of that is about giving me a break. It's about moving uh, rather than being so static all the time. But it's so funny how typically on those walks, I'll go out there with the intention of I'm going to have a conversation with my brother who I go for on walks with a lot. I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to listen to a podcast. I'm going to do something for me, right? But inevitably, I end up thinking about work. And I think about, well, what are the three things I'm going to do when I get back in the chair? 
And so when I sit down and it's time to go back to work, I'm hitting it and I'm going. And it's so easy to, especially when you have a lot of things you're trying to do, whether it's um, homework for lots of different classes or homework that some of it's reading and some of it's writing and some of it's, you know, uh, a project that you have to do. When it's big, it's so easy to get overwhelmed or to burn time on one thing that maybe isn't the best place where you put your time. And so I'm so focused on micro goals, which is you're going to do one thing for 20 minutes or 45 minutes, but you're not going to do anything else but that thing until it's done. And it's that kind of, I'm not naturally an organized person. This was something that is like a lifetime in training to try and follow like, well, what is the structure that works for me? Jill is super like, I got my to-do list. I did it last night. I revised it this morning. I'm ready to go. I'm not that way. Uh, And so building in those windows like you do where you're scheduling time for yourself, this is when I go to the gym, this is when I do yoga, or this is when I go for the walk, it makes sure that you do those things. And it's only going to help stay on top of things. So rather than it being a stressor, like, oh, well, I can't take a break from my work right now, because I need to get it done. You're going to be so much more refreshed when you sit back down to do it, that I love putting that stuff in your phone. That's a fantastic way to go about things. Well, and the last thing I'll say on it, the course correction action or what works for you is different for everybody. So our book is like full of bunches of tips because not every single one of them works for every person. It was like a grab bag and you're just like, oh, that one sounds good to me. I like that. And so it's just like Dave said earlier, taking a second to sit back and giving yourself space to think about like, what does work for me when I've been stressed in the past? How have I course corrected? We, we probably have the secrets in us. It's just about giving yourself time to figure them out and think about what's, what have you used in the past when, you, when you've needed a little reset, what has worked? That is amazing to recognize and amazing advice because like, I'll take me and my brother, for example. My brother needs no help remembering to eat and to go hang out with his friends and to go out at night. He has no problem remembering that, does not need to put time in his phone to tell him to do that. But he needs other things to help him with school because academics don't always fall at the top of his priorities. The social life does versus for me, the academics, the work always at the top and the social life will get pushed to the bottom. So different things that we have to course correct are going to be different. It's okay, even if your sibling does it one way, that you learn a different way. You don't have to be the same as your closest friends or the influencers on social media or what we're saying. You can find ones that work for you. Now, before we wrap up, I really want to know what are some things students can do this summer to prepare for that transition to college? Using your phone to make some lists. So I think the first one Start thinking about your day-to-day habits. What are two to five things that you can do every day that make you feel kind of in control of your life? Because you know there's going to be so much chaos when you get into that environment. Um, Again, I'll, I'll give one example of like make your bed. A lot of people roll their eyes at that. But some things that work for me, Every single day I make a to-do list and I usually do it at night so that I can kind of dump out in my head what needs to get done tomorrow so that I'm not thinking about it as I'm trying to fall asleep. So that's like one little thing I do every single day that makes me feel prepared for the next day. What's something you do? Every day. Well, my, my kind of daily habits 
are a little bit more of a reset practice, which we'll talk about in just a second, but I have to walk every single day. I have to move, not just physically, but mentally. So that's something that I plan on. I know I'm going to do that in the morning. I know I'm going to do that again after I eat like a lunch, and I'm probably going to do that again at night. So that's something I do every single day that I can count on that I know works for me. Do you have other ones other than what you said before about like moving and drinking water, things you do to kind of make yourself feel grounded? Yeah, for me, I love to kind of just lay down on the floor a couple times a day. It, I, I don't know why I've always loved like working on the floor and putting my computer books down on the floor, but just like laying down, I think instead of running nonstop or sitting in front of the computer, just staring at it, but actually just giving my body a chance to rest. And then as well as just a couple minutes of journaling, just expressing what's ever kind of built up in my head, maybe these unconscious thoughts that I'm having that are insecurities or extra stressors and just getting them out. And, you know, to that point, these don't need to be new things you've never done that you're like, I'm going to try it for the first time in college. They should be things that are familiar that you've used as tools during high school to just in everyday life to feel like, all right, I got this. This is my rhythm. These are my routines. Um, And and they're going to be different for everybody. And I think what's really important is that they shouldn't take a lot of time. And that's your home base. It doesn't mean you won't stray from them. There are some days I don't make my to-do list. There are some days he doesn't move. And at the end of the day, usually we both don't feel great. And so you're like, oh, I just got to go back to that little practice. It's not that you need to be perfect. It's just that you take a minute to be conscious about what you need as a person to kind of feel like you've got a rhythm to your days. And then branching off that, I think it's also worthwhile to make a list of two to five things that are sort of your intervention, like reset practices. When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel like you're sort of off kilter, what can you do to take a step back and recharge? So for me, that's taking a shower. If I'm starting to feel like really panicked and really overwhelmed and I just need a minute to think, I'll go take a shower or I'll walk. We have a coffee shop down the road. I'll just walk down to the coffee shop and just getting out of my environment is hugely helpful. There is something about the warmth of a shower that like it from a chemical level also really helps me. But both things for me is about leaving whatever environment, physically leaving it um, was stressing me out. And then what are your Those are both things that I do to kind of reset. But along that same idea, it's about right now you're recognizing I'm stressed. Right. And I need to take a break. And so what are some things you can do in order to take a break? I love listening to podcasts. Right. And so going on a walk and just getting away from where I was and what I was thinking about and listening to other people tell stories puts me at ease. I don't know why it does, but it does. And that's something that when I recognize like, oh, I'm not digging right now, I'm not digging this. That's something I'll do is I'll go just put, throw on a podcast and get out. Well, and, you know, to that end, we actually, we know each other's reset practices because a lot of the times when you're in that place, you don't necessarily even realize you're there. So like yesterday, Dave was kind of in a, in a grumpy mood. I was not a very happy person yesterday. <laughs> but let's I, just, yeah. let's call it what But it I is. know because, you know, we've lived together for so long and we're married and best friends. It's like, I can be like, Hey, why don't you put on your headphones and go for a walk? And so knowing those reset practices for yourself when you're not in a time of crisis and putting it in your phone so that when you're there, you have a checklist where you can be like, Oh, I do these things, put it in your phone, put it on your mini fridge, tell your parents or whoever you're close to, to be like, here's my list. If I'm in a bad place, remind me what I'm supposed to do. And 
we started doing this when I was pregnant with our first kid. One of my friends told me to have this on our fridge for after we had the baby. Cause she's like, you will get in these places where you're super overwhelmed and you'll forget what is good for you. And so that's how it started. And just the more research we did, it's like, everybody should take a minute, probably already know what these things are, but take a minute to think about them and write them down so that you have a toolkit and taking a hot shower doesn't always work for me. So that's why you should have options so that when, you know, you know how you're feeling in the moment, which one is feeling the most appealing. What are some things that you do, Fran, when you recognize, like, I am not digging what's happening right now and I need to, I need to reset. I need to take a break. So for me, one of my favorite things to do is go for a walk on the beach and like, you know, that spot where like the wave like kind of just brushes at your feet and like you feel, I feel like you're like the closest to the center of earth for some reason right there. So for me, that's a great place to just kind of watch my worries flow away. Um, So I love to do that. I actually take my dog to the beach and let her run around in circles. And then another thing I do is I let myself cry. Like I have to get that energy out because if I don't cry or I don't scream, there's a good chance it's not going to go away. But almost immediately after I put on a face mask because I'm not going to keep crying if there's a face mask on me. I'm not ruining that face mask (laughs) and I'm giving myself a chance to I let out the emotion, but it's not going to take over my entire day and the rest of what I need to do. That's awesome. That's such a big, we are both big criers. Our kids have seen us cry probably more times than they can count just because that's such a huge part of it is like getting the emotion out, recognizing it's there and just like making, coming to terms with it is always a big part of moving past it. Um, And so the the last thing. the, The last list we would recommend students put in their phone before they go off to school is put two to five people's names in your phone that you know you could call if you find yourself in crisis. So on a stress scale of one to 10, we're talking about eight or nine or 10. When you find yourself in a position where you're having conversations on the phone in your closet because you're afraid of your roommate (laughs) and you know that like this is something that is, I'm not feeling great about what's happening right now. um, You really need to be able to have an outlet that's not a part of the school where you are building your new life. At some point in time, the school you are going to, that new world you're creating for yourself is going to suck. And whether that's like your new best friend who you find out is not your new best friend or the grade you got on a paper was not what you expected or you haven't slept in two weeks or you've been partying too much, whatever it is, you're going to find a moment where like all of this world that I feel like represents the entire world is not good. You got to be able to have a way to step out of that And if you can call somebody, ideally an adult, a friend, somebody who's not connected to that world, um, it's it's better if if they happen to be an adult, but they don't need to be. I mean, that's only because adults tend to be able to weigh on things a little bit more objectively. But sometimes it's great to hear a friend from high school be like, yes, that person sucks. Or like college is super hard and I'm struggling too. Somebody who will be level with you and tell you, you know, how they're doing. But it's so easy for you to feel like this new bubble I'm in is the only thing that exists. And if that's not going well, well, what does that mean for me? And so to be able to step out of that, even if it's momentarily and be reminded there's this whole world that doesn't care about your college, right? There's this whole world that doesn't care about the grade you got or how your relationships are going have those names in your phone because when you're in a bad spot 
you might not remember who you could call in those moments. Building on what you said, I love when I get that phone call, like, I hate this person. They suck. I'm like, me too. Who do we hate? <laughs> Solidarity. I, I love that. And I love having people to be able to call. For me, being able to call my grandmother was one of like the most important things, just FaceTiming her. And even if it's just me reading my notes so that I don't feel like I'm studying alone or I'm in this alone, you both have been absolutely amazing Thank you so much for not only writing this book and making this resource available to so many of us who really need it, but for coming on and talking with me today. I just absolutely admire and adore both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a privilege to be here.